Heavenly Father, once again, we pause in our walk, in our journey to look around and check to see where you are and where we are in relation to you. To realign ourselves to your word and your will. To seek uh, your spirit's, Spirit's guidance and knowledge. May you be glorified in what we do and say as we look to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we'll go ahead and dismiss the kids. If you want to follow Mr. Donald, Miss Becky, Mr. Pickle. All right, we're gonna, they're going to head downstairs. And we're going to turn to the book of Genesis in just a minute. But let me, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. What percentage of human beings do you think will do... Hold on. Hey, Cora. Cora, just so you know, Ariel's downstairs. Okay? <laughs> um, so uh, what percentage of people, of human beings, if you look at all human beings, what percentage of human beings would do the right thing if it puts them at a disadvantage. Now, this might seem like a, a, a weird question, um, but really most of the beginning of the book of Genesis deals with this very issue. What percentage of human beings will do the right thing if it puts them at a disadvantage? Now, we like to believe that the vast majority of people will do the right thing in all circumstances. However, if we look at our environment, if we look at our world, if we look at our experience with human beings, would you say that it is a pretty standard rule? That it is the exception to the case. It is the exception that someone would do something that is the right thing if it puts them at a disadvantage. Now, I'm not talking about paying for somebody's food and Dunkin' Donuts because the line is long. Um, Let's be honest. Most of the time when somebody pays for the cars behind them, it's because they're just bored of waiting in line and they want the line to move. They're like, I suffered. I don't want them to suffer. I'll just pay for this guy's coffee. Um, You know, kind of a situation. For the most part, for the most part, human beings will elevate their, um, their comfort, their... Uh, their opinions, their ideas, their, um, their agenda, that is going to override doing the right thing, all right, if doing the right thing is going to ruin that situation. And people do this all the time. We, we, see, uh, we see it in our children. We like to think that we mature out of this, uh, right? But we see it in our children. Um, we see sometimes that uh, a child will um, behave as long as behaving gets them the results they want. But when it no longer gives them the result that they want, they pursue, let's call it, alternate motivation. Uh, they, they, uh, our daughter who's down in the nursery when she was little, well, even now today, she is a super, super picky eater. One time her, uh, grandmother, Nicole's mom was talking to her. She said, well, honey, you need to eat lots of things. Ariel was probably four, maybe five years old. Uh, you need to eat more things. And Ariel said, I do eat lots of things. I eat pizza from next door, pizza from Pizza Hut, pizza from Domino's, pizza from the mall. And she started to list all the pizza places that she liked. 
Um, and this was her perspective. Well, Ariel did not like to eat things sometimes. She's a texture eater. Um, one time she was in the car. We were on vacation. We bought her chicken nuggets. I know, don't question my parenting decisions, uh, from McDonald's. And she's, um, she's sitting there, and she's eating this chicken nugget, and she didn't like it. She didn't want it. And so she just proceeded to not eat this chicken nugget for about half an hour. Just kept it in her mouth. The back seat of the car. Ariel, chew your chicken nugget. I mean, literally, I'm afraid this kid is going to choke because she's got a chicken nugget permanently mounted in her mouth. And finally, I lost it. I pulled the car to the side of the road. I whipped the door open, spit it out. You know, being a very well-conducted parent. Um, because I was just so frustrated. She, just, she decided she was going to outweigh me. This is a child, by the way. I don't know how many of you have ever ascribed to the idea, just let them cry it out. Did not work with Ariel. They're like, well, eventually she'll just stop crying. No, she won't. That child would cry for two days in a row. Uh, we put her in a room. She did not like an apartment that we, were, we had when she was very young. Uh, suddenly she was quiet. She was crying, 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 crying. Suddenly she was quiet. I was like, oh my gosh, she finally went to sleep. And I opened the door and there's my little infant daughter, toddler daughter, holding on to, holding on to the edge of her, of her crib going, <laughs> she had literally lost her voice and was still crying. Because she didn't want to sleep in there. She didn't want to be in there. There was something about that room she didn't like. Well, we see that in kids, but in reality, human beings, adults, we, we might be better at it, but we still look for our advantage in any situation. How is this going to work out for me? Well, when we look in the book of Genesis, we see that it, it, it is not just something, uh, we don't have to talk about that something happening now. It happened then. Cain and Abel. Cain thinks he can get away with killing his brother if he takes him out in the field. That way, rather than working harder at pleasing God, he'll be the only one left, and therefore God will have to work with him. Uh, it didn't work out for Cain. Um, Cain and Abel is the situation there. Building up to the, the, the story of Noah and the ark, and I'm not going to talk about, you know, we can get into all the historicity and all that stuff, but building up to that, we have this depiction of a world where people are just doing whatever gets them the best advantage, whatever works for me. Whatever pleases me. And the scriptures say that Noah was an upright man. He, he, was, uh, he was the only one who was willing to uh, be righteous. But even Noah blows it. Uh, at the end of his story, he gets drunk. And there's a whole really embarrassing episode there. In genealogy after genealogy, we see generation after generation making poor choices from our perspective. Because... Human beings are not going to choose to do the right thing if it puts them at too much of a disadvantage. They're just not going to do it. Now again, this is not a law. It's just a general guideline. It's an assumption. I realized this about myself a long time ago. Uh, I'll share this about you, and it may explain some of the weirdness about me, although there's a lot that's inexplicable. Um, uh, I generally assume that people are going to take advantage of me. It's just my general assumption. Um, I've seen enough human beings abuse enough human beings that I just start from the point of view of, what are you looking to get out of this? Now, you say, that's awfully cynical. 
I agree. But it is how my brain works. I look at a situation, I'm always thinking the worst about anyone. Uh, just ask my daughter as I was teaching her to drive. My fundamental rule when I'm driving is think of the stupidest, most nonsensical, most dangerous thing that someone can do and then just assume everyone else on the street is going to do it. I was like, that's how you stay safe. She's like, how can you think that about people as somebody pulls out in front of us, crosses three lanes of traffic, goes into the median, and then goes, turns right from the left lane? I wish I were making it up. All right? But people do whatever brings advantage to them. This is just the human experience. So today, I want to talk about one guy that comes out of the human experience and struggles. I'm not going to say succeeds. He struggles, but he struggles with an intent to overcome his own desire for his own advantage and instead to serve his God. And, and we're going to begin in Genesis uh, chapter 12. And we're talking about big ideas. And today's big idea, I'll just go ahead and, and clue you in. Today's big idea is faith. We talked uh, three weeks ago, or two weeks ago, uh, three weeks ago, the first week, we talked about our big idea that God is our creator and sovereign. And last week we talked about the reality of sin as taking something that is good and twisting it to something that is opposed to God's will. And today we want to talk about faith. And in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, Genesis chapter 12 and verse 4, Abraham went. So, Abram went. If you want to know what the template of faith was for all of the authors of the biblical books. It doesn't matter who we're talking about. David, Jeremiah, uh, Hosea. Um, we, uh, we could talk about Ezekiel. We could talk about Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Apostle Paul, Jude, Peter. Um, it doesn't matter who we're talking about. The template for faith is this guy here, Abram. And it all starts in a moment in chapter 12 when God says, Go. Now, understand what we're talking about. And I, and I want to give you, um, very quickly, I'm not going to spend a long time on this, but I want to I I clear from our mind kind of the image we probably have of Abraham. Uh, probably when you think of Abraham, you think of a guy in a big white beard wearing basically a beach towel as a clothes um, with a stick walking through the desert. All right. Um, now, this is not a historically accurate reconstruction. What, what happened was in the 1800s, 1700s, Europeans encountered the Bedouin uh, of, uh, of the Middle East, 
And they just assumed that because the Bedouin were quote-unquote primitive people, they dressed and acted the way that people who lived in the mid, middle and late Bronze Age dressed and acted, which makes absolutely no sense. But that's where it came from. By the way, most of academia is saying something that makes no sense confidently so that everybody believes you. Uh, and so they, they basically we have this image of Moses, you know, big flowing robes walking through the wilderness. Well, Moses' clothes were made of wool. Can you imagine walking around uh, the wilderness of southern Judea in multiple layers of wool clothing? Would get a little warm, no? Um, now, we know that, that Abram, he, he comes from what's called Ur Kashidim, or that's translated in our Bibles as Ur of the Chaldees. Um, and again, 1800 scholarship decided that was down by Kuwait. Why? Because they decided it did, not because there was any evidence. Um, he probably is from what today would be northeastern Syria, northwestern Iraq, what is called uh, Kurdistan today. Um, that that name Kurd, if you look at look up the the meaning the origin of that name K K U R D, it goes way way back. The same group of people have lived there for a while. He's actually called an Aramean, which means he's a Syrian. Uh, so he's from the region of what today we call Syria. Uh, but but Abram Abraham is probably uh, when we see Abram in our minds, I want you to reset that thinking. The whole idea of he's got white hair and he's always old in the story um, is not really accurate. He does get old, but I want you instead picture him the way the Egyptians pictured these this people, which they called uh, they called with a derogatory term that we loosely translate as Asiatics. It's not really what it means. It means uh, strangers. It really really means those guys over there that aren't us. All right, um, that's how the Egyptians viewed the world. There was Egypt. And then there were those guys over there who aren't really us. And if you're familiar with the Egyptians, you know Egyptians, they wear white kilts. Um, because it's linen, it's really hard to dye linen. You've got to use wool to dye it. Um, they tend to not wear shirts. They're kind of hanging out in the Nile, worshiping alligators in the sun and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, sorry, crocodiles. Alligators are in uh, Western Hemisphere. Um, well, the, the Asiatics, which they depict on some of their inscriptions, uh, they do wear uh, these, they wear shirts for one thing, which is kind of cool. Um, so Abraham's not walking around bare-chested. But uh, the, one of the things that marks them is they, they wear a lot of colors. Egyptians tended to wear just white, red, blue, simple colors. Well, the, the, uh, these Asiatic people, they wear a lot of colors. They hang out with sheep, um, lots and lots of sheep, and they're wanderers. They are vagrants. They're, they're all over the place. And every once in a while, they caught, show up on the Egyptian border and they cause trouble. And then the Egyptians either negotiate with them or they beat them up or whatever. Um, but they were bearded. Um, they tended to wear their hair very short. Um, there was no braiding or anything like that going on. Um, they tended to be bigger than the Egyptians. Um, and Abram, uh, we find out later that Abram has a personal army that is of significant size. So throw away the idea that Abram is just this poor farmer, sheep, shepherd, I almost called him sheep herder because I didn't know what the word was, shepherd um, wandering around the backside of the wilderness and replace him with a very dangerous general who commands quite a significant group of people and goes wherever he wants to whenever he wants to. 
Abram is not some little shepherd. He is the chieftain of a very significant people movement. And his father was a, fa was a leader of a significant people movement. And his brother established a city. And then in chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. And in verse 4, Abram went. See, Abram getting up and leaving was not a matter of him saying to his wife, Well, I had this dream and God said we should go. It's rather the idea of moving probably thousand people if not more, putting together a caravan with all of the necessary uh, uh, fodder for the animals, all the necessary planning for moving the, the herd of sheep. Now this kind of people movement, especially in the Middle and Late Bronze Age, was, was very common in time periods when, there were, when the environment really increased the productivity, made things that were normally gray-green. And we know that what was happening in this time period was that there were shifts going on in the weather patterns in Africa. It was causing more rain, more precipitation in the Middle East, and so there was a necessity for people to move. So God says to Abraham, you need to go. And Abram goes. Now, I want you to notice right at the beginning that Abram doesn't ask any questions. He will ask questions later. His wife will certainly ask questions. But Abram is called, to God, called by God to leave his home and follow God's will. And he does. Now let me give you the big idea right up front so you can go take a nap if you need to. Faith is not complicated. Faith is not a matter of getting all of our ducks in a row doctrinally and theologically, although there's value in doctrine and there's value in theology. Faith is not about making sure we look the right way, sound the right way, eat the right foods, dress the right way, follow the right rules. Faith is not complicated. Human religion is complicated. All of, the, all of the cultural expectations we place upon our faith, those are complicated. But faith is not complicated. Faith is, God calls, I go. That's really all faith is. Well, isn't it more complicated? I mean, doesn't faith mean I have to be a good husband? God calls, I go. Doesn't faith mean that I have to be a good citizen? God calls, I go. It's simple. It's not complicated. You see, what about all of my emotional baggage? What about all of my apologetic questions? What about all of the reasons not to? Faith boils down to when God calls, do I go? God calls and I go, that's faith. If God calls and I don't, that's disbelief. It's simple. It's not complicated. There's not layers to it. It's a binary situation. It's a yes or no problem. Either I'm, I'm, I, God calls and I go, or God calls and I don't. See, there's got to be more to it. There really isn't. God called, Abram went. And then, immediately, makes a mistake. 
immediately makes a mistake. Remember I mentioned there's this thing going on in Africa. It's making the, Medi the Mediterranean all green and lush and everything. But it's not naturally like that. So then they get a famine at later on in the chapter. And Abram goes, well, I guess God wants us to go to Egypt. God never said to go to Egypt. Abram goes to Egypt, causes all kinds of problems the rest of his life. Picks up a handmaiden, has a kid with her. That causes issues. His wife tries to kill the kid, tries to kill the wife. Then the wife's kid, and it just gets all confusing. But Abraham is called, and he just chooses to go. God promises, and Abram lives in the promise. Then in chapter 15, and I'm skipping around just to kind of give you a summary. In chapter 15, um, this is after a whole combat. There's a whole battle that Abram sends his takes his personal army and goes to rescue his nephew Lot, who's nothing but trouble. Um, fights the battle, brings him back, meets a guy named Melchizedek, um, who is one of these crazy guys. Um, I, I have a theory about who he is. Uh, uh, I actually believe he's the son of Noah. Um, I think he's Shem, the son of Noah. I can't prove it. I wouldn't take a bullet for it. Um, but if you lived for several hundred years, you'd change your name too. And um, Melchizedek just means the king of righteousness. That's all it means. Melech, king, Zedek, righteousness. Um, and so, uh, and so he's, he runs in this guy named Melchizedek. He has a conversation with him. And then in chapter 15 and verse 1, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. Now, this is a funny thing to say to a guy who just won a huge military victory, no? Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. See Abram starting to complicate the faith. See, Abram's starting to say to God, okay, I get it, all right, you called me, I left, you told me that my children, I'd, have a, I'd be a blessing to all nations, um, the only person that I have to inherit my home is one of my slaves, um, and Abram in verse 5, he said, verse 3, he says, Abram said, behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. God simply repeating the obvious thing. If God told Abraham he was going to have a son, Abram was going to have a son. What is the problem? Abram is struggling in his faith. In verse 5, and, and the Lord brought Abram outside and said, look to the heaven, number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offering, offspring be. Now look at verse 6. And Abram, he, believed, and he, the Lord, counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. Faith is simple. God says go, God calls, and I go. And when I struggle, faith is simple. I believe even in my own misunderstanding and failure. Oh, I made a mistake. I did it wrong. Now God's not going to be able to use me. If God can continue to use Abram, he can continue to use you. You are not defined by your failures. God does not perceive you 
delineated by your failures, God sees you bounded only by the potential of you following his will. And so when Abram confronts God and says, God, I don't know how you're going to do this, and God says to him, God doesn't say to him, all right, Abram, let me break down the details for you. All right, so how are you, are you doing it wrong? God doesn't ask him that question. God says, Abram, he says, come out here. Now, I love this about the relationship with Abram and God. Where else do we read in the Bible God appearing to somebody and somebody questions him and God says, come on, take a walk with me. Okay. See the stars? Count them. Now, I could be wrong and Abram correct me when I get to heaven. But I have a feeling that when God did that, Abram started going, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, And God's like, no, 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 no. No, no, no. He says, you see, they're, they're boundless. They're, they're numberless. You could never count all of them. There are always new ones appearing. That's what, it, that's what it's going to be like for you. And Abraham believes. And his belief in his imperfection, in his brokenness, in his doubts, in his fears, Abraham counts his belief for righteousness. Faith is simple. God calls and we go. We doubt, and God says believe, and we do. Then in chapter 17, Abram was 99 years old. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now at this point, if I'm Abram, I'm going, okay, we've covered this. And yet God is appearing to Abraham again and Abram falls on his face. The Lord says, behold, my covenant It's going to be everlasting to you. In verse 8, he says, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now remember, Abram doesn't have a son yet. And God said to Abram, as for you, well, he has a son, but it's the son of the slave girl I was mentioning earlier. Uh, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep, verse 10, between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Worst news for a population, an army ever. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight years old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant." Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now look in verse 22. There's a whole promise about the coming son. But in verse 22, when he finished talking, when the Lord finished talking, God went up from Abraham. Verse 23, Then Abram took Ishmael his son, that's his son with the slave girl Hagar, 
And all those born in his house are bought with all his money. Every male among the men of Abram's house, he circumcised the flesh of the foreskins that very day as God had said to him. We come back. God called. Abraham went. Abraham failed. Abraham doubted. God called again. Abraham obeyed. He believed, even in his misunderstanding. Now God gives Abraham a sign for a covenant that Abraham is still a decade away from seeing the results of. And God says to him, here's what I want you to do. And Abraham acts upon his faith. God said, go. Abraham went. Abraham struggled. God said, believe. Abraham believed. God said, do. And Abraham said, I do not understand what is going on here, but I will do it. I mean, he had to have a lot of questions about this particular thing. Like, God, is there a brochure, maybe a tablet, something? God says, this is the sign. Now, this is, I'm not going to get into the details of this, but this was a very uniquely uh, Hebrew thing. As near as we can tell, nobody else practiced it in the culture, in their society. Uh, there's, there's some stories about Egyptians doing it, um, but those all come from much later. So we, we have no idea uh, whether it, it, it was done by anybody. Abraham acted as if the promise was already a reality. Now this is different from kind of the secret, you know, the power of realization. A million dollars, million dollars, million dollars, poof. When God speaks and he commands, we have to act as if the command is a real thing, even though we may not be able to see the results of this. Paul actually deals with this in the book of Romans in chapter 8. He talks about what is hope if you can already see what you're supposedly hoping for. What is belief? What is belief if everything that you believe God will do is already right in front of you? That's not belief. That's, that's just laziness. But faith is embracing the promise as if it is a reality. And living as if that reality exists today. I don't know about you, but I've never been resurrected. Not once. But God says, the Bible says, that one day, if this body fails and returns to the dirt, at one point, God is going to resurrect my body, and I'm going to go and I'm going to dwell with Him. You see, i got a lot of questions about that. Join the crowd. I got a lot of questions about that too. But I'm going to live as if that promise is a reality. I'm going to embrace the life that is given me, that God has given me now, believing that I will be, as he says, that creation groans awaiting the adoption of sons, that God has called me to be uh, something I am going to be with him, and so by his grace I'm just going to live as if that's a reality. You know, one of our biggest problems where the rubber hits the road as Christians 
is accepting God's reality instead of our own. One of our biggest problems as Christians is that we walk around going, gee, I sure hope one day maybe God will do the thing that He promised He might do, maybe. God created man and woman, male and female. He created them. That means that God created your marriage to work. You've got to believe that God is going to give you the tools to make it work. And maybe those tools come from somewhere else. Maybe those tools come from a, a marriage counselor who helps you with it. Maybe those tools come from, uh, you know, and guys, I'm just going to talk to you guys because I'm not a woman. I don't know if you noticed. But um, uh, as, as a guy, maybe, maybe the reality we have to live in um, is the reality that maybe we, the guy, the man, we may not be right all the time. I know that that's difficult for us to understand. Um, and, and maybe sometimes we need to understand this is a partnership. Maybe we need to be a little bit more honest, a little bit more transparent. Maybe we need to let our emotions go a little bit. Um, we need to be embraced that. And ladies, maybe, maybe there's something about your... I am not going to speak to how your brains work, but um, maybe there's something about the reality of your relationship with your husband that you have to realize God's reality, not your reality, and you've got to trust God's reality. All over, all over the world, there are, there are Christians who are trying to create God's reality rather than live as if it is a reality. We're going we're gonna to build the kingdom of God through our tremendous programs and branding and websites and all those things. You can't build the kingdom of God. The king builds the kingdom of God. You're just the tools. You're just the, the, you're just the, the stones in the wall of the house of God. We're the stewards of the gospel. It's God who builds His kingdom. It's Christ who builds the kingdom, not us. Abraham acted in a faith that the promise was a reality. You say, well, that's too hard. It's a discipline, guys. It took Abraham about 25 years to master it. So you're not alone struggling with this. But you've got to believe that the reality God is conforming you to, conforming us to, that that reality is where we live, not in this place where we sojourn. That the reality is not the stumblings we have along the road but the city that we're headed to on the road. We modern people have an unnecessarily complicated, self-centered view of faith. If God is going to give me something, I want it now. If God is going to save me, I want Him to save me now. If God is going to mend this situation, I want Him to mend it now. We are so impatient. God says to Abraham, Abram, leave your home, leave your land, pack up your army, march wherever I tell you to go. And God doesn't say, oh, and it's going to be about 30 years or so. He just says, do it. And Abram does it. Abram struggles. God calls him on his doubts. Abraham believes, and it's counted to him for righteousness. 
Not that Abraham was righteous, but that it was counted to him for righteousness. And when God says to Abraham, do this thing, it's a part of my promise, it's a part of my reality that I'm creating for you, Abraham says, okay. Not an easy thing to do, by the way. Going through a camp of soldiers and telling them that they're going to have that particular procedure. This is why the apostles call Abraham the father of all who believe. Not because Abraham understood everything that was facing him in his faith, but rather precisely because he didn't understand everything he was facing. Precisely because he walked in faith, stumbled and struggled in faith in a situation he could not possibly understand, believing that God would make things a reality. And just to make sure that we understood that about him, we then get a story at the end, after his son Isaac is born, God says to him, I want you to sacrifice Isaac. And the writer of Hebrews says that Abram was willing to sacrifice Isaac because at that point, he believed so strongly in the promise of God that he believed that if he killed his son, God would raise him from the dead because God's promises were his reality. Man, I wish I had that kind of faith. A faith that no matter what the circumstances say, God is in control. His reality is the only reality that matters, and I'm going to follow Him. And shouldn't Abraham's simple faith be our daily goal? Again, Hebrews says he, he looked for a city whose builder and foundation was God. Abram literally believed, probably at the beginning of his life, that one day he was just going to come over a hill and there was going to be a sign that said, Abram's house, city of God. It's like, done. And then after a while, Abram came to realize, nope, God's not done with me. God's just going to keep moving me. God's going to keep leading me. He's going to keep taking my army into the wilderness. He's going to keep taking my sheep to the wells. So let me do this real quick. It doesn't matter what your family tree is. It doesn't matter who your father is. It doesn't matter who your mother is. If you had godly moms and dads, that's fantastic. It's a diminishing percentage of people who have that. It doesn't matter where your family tree is. It doesn't matter your ancestry. It doesn't matter if you're biological or adopted. The father of our faith is Abraham. When God called, he went. When Abraham doubted, God corrected and he believed. When God said, do this and live in the reality of my promise, Abraham acted. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, help us to live in your reality. Your truth is 